Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, is there value in federal provincial meetings when it comes to the Freedom Convoy? Doug Ford wasn't interested in talking at the table. He's changed his mind. What's going on here? The David Suzuki Foundation has created an open letter raising the alarm about Highway 413 and the Greenbelt and the climate crisis. Gideon Foreman, a climate change and transportation policy analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation, is going to join us and talk about that. And Canada's healthcare system needs physicians to fill important gaps, but has also set up barriers for international students and even Canadians who are trying to get their training offshore. That's got to be fixed. We'll talk about that as well as we continue the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Healthcare, of course, is the issue on everybody's minds these days. And uh, Canada's premiers presented a united front as they emerged from a closed door meeting in Winnipeg. Uh, calling the Prime Minister and out on this and saying, look, he's got to sit down with us and broker a deal on health care funding. Uh, Prime Premier Doug Ford was at that meeting, of course, and says what, what, we not hear, what we're not hearing and what we want to hear is they want a long-term solution to this. Here's what the Premier said. It's not about here's one chunk of money. It's about how can we plan for proper health care for our backlog surgeries for the next 10, 15 years? How can we plan for the infrastructure of mental health and addiction for the next 10, 15 years, knowing we have a, a proper partner? Um, we, we've been going out there for the last four years right now, uh, basing our budgets on we're getting 22%. Uh, so we're still throwing numbers at each other. There's a lot of finger pointing and a lot of hyperbole going on here. Uh, but Doug Ford front and center, because of the reaction, of course, that he's had about this, he's the one, one of the premiers that's been most vocal about saying the premiers have to sit down with the prime minister and hash this out, which is quite a different message that he was giving us back in uh, February when the federal government uh, wanted the premier to sit down with them and talk about the uh, the freedom convoy that was going on in Ottawa. Susan Delacourt, national uh, columnist for the Toronto Star, writes about that, and she joins us here on the Bill Keller Show to uh, to talk about the, uh, uh, shall we say, the contrasting styles over the last number of months. Uh, Susan, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Nice to be back, Bill. I, I love the, well, you put it in the piece here, uh, of course, the characterization. Uh, when Ford poo-hooed the idea of a uh, sit-down uh, about the convoy, he just said, that's a bunch of people just sitting around and talking, and that's not going to get anything done. But as, as you so rightly point out, that's kind of what politicians do, isn't it? Yet that's sort of the, uh, I guess, Jim Watson, who was then the mayor of Ottawa, when Ford said, uh, I don't see the point of a bunch of people sitting around talking. And uh, Jim Watson said to him, that sounds like a cabinet meeting to me. <laughs> and, you know, I don't want to, I, I, as I said in the piece, I don't want to mock the idea of meetings. I think meetings are important, but it's, it is sort of the, when, um, when all you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail. And, I don't know that a meeting is what a stressed out uh, person in an emergency ward wants right now or an exhausted nurse wants right now. The first thing on their minds isn't, boy, I wish the first ministers would just sit down and, and sort out this health crisis. It is a real crisis, and I'm not sure a meeting is the first item on the agenda. Well, and, and as you point out in the piece, there's all. I think it's fair to ask it this question too. Uh, to what end? I mean, they can't even agree on what's what the problem is here. You know, they're talking about money, they're talking about healthcare reform, they're talking about delivering this in a much different way. Uh, but the, you know, the premiers seem to have dug their heels in here and simply say, "This is our territory. Just give us the money and leave us alone." Well, we're told one of the other things we learned during the convoy hearings was that provinces and provincial leaders talk to the federal government in a very different way in front of the cameras and behind mm -hmm. the scenes. So 
it, yeah, there, there, there's a little less posturing behind the scenes. And I think a lot of this is for the benefit of the cameras, I, I, I guess, is standing up and making these demands. But we're, we're told that behind the scenes there is progress. Just as we saw, you know, COVID was a national emergency, for sure. We didn't declare the uh, an official emergency. But we saw provinces and the federal government just getting to it. You know, just let, let's get this done. And I think that's where we're at right now. It's not just because of COVID, but it's certainly the strain on it. And it's uh, yesterday, I believe it was yesterday, uh, the head of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Lafontaine, was saying, you know, we could just start doing the things now like we did during COVID and talk about the money later. And I think that's what a parent or uh, a person in an emergency ward wants to hear right now or a nurse or a, any kind of medical professional is let's stop talking about what we're gonna, how we're going to pay for it and talk about what we're paying for. Well, which is, as you say, the attitude that we had in COVID. I mean, you know, the, the mantra from from Ottawa, from the Prime Minister at that time, during his, his daily sessions when he came out of his cottage there in Ottawa, uh, was let's just do this and we'll worry about the bill later. And and I know, you know, people who are fiscally responsible just kind of shuddered at that, but it, it worked to a certain extent. It may have gone on too long, but it worked. Why aren't they taking that same attitude about this, which is, as you mentioned, maybe even a more egregious crisis than, than that one was? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, everybody is exhausted. It's not just the healthcare system. I think every system is sort of strained mm-hmm. after two, almost three years of, of a pandemic. So I, I I think everybody's just sort of creaking under the weight of this right now. But it, you've got a situation where people are not going to emergency when they need to because they're afraid they'll be there for days. You know, the, the, the stories are just horrific. And, and you're right, it, it, it may well be worse than COVID. Uh, the situation we're in right now. So there are, I, I'm i not a, a professional and I'm not an expert in all of this too, but I, you know, like every Canadian, I have questions about the way our system works and they're not about money. It's about why every problem has to be filtered through an emergency room. Isn't there some way that we can take the pressure off emergency rooms? How do we make sure that people get to see a family doctor, if maybe not into their own individual one, at least a team of them? And those ideas are all bubbling around out there, and we're not doing them because we're we seem to be thinking that, or when I say we, it, the only conversation the premiers seem to want to have, and the federal government is is arguments over money, and I don't know that that's the priority right now. Yesterday, I was driving downtown with my wife, and we drove past St. Joe's Hospital in downtown Hamilton, and uh, there were seven ambulances lined up there, which is not unusual, by the way. I, I just go by any hospital in Ontario, you're going to see that. But, but we it, it, we started talking about it and said, look, there's got to be a better way. I mean, you know, we've been talking about this for 10 years, and it still hasn't been fixed. You know, why don't they have a, a better methodology for offloading people in ambulances as opposed to these guys having to sit around and wait until they're triaged and everything else? Uh and and that's that's simple stuff that I'm sure healthcare professionals have some solutions to, but uh, you know we don't even seem to be getting around to to the specifics of how these things can be fixed. Yeah, I think we've got to start looking for stories exactly like that. I remember I was in emergency with my parents a few years ago, and uh, the ambulance drivers. I was shocked to hear that ambulance drivers just have to sit there and wait until yeah. the people are admitted. I I don't know the details of it. I'm just going to try to look it up here, but 
um, the Malfour Hospital, it's a very good hospital here in Ottawa, has been experimenting with ways of relieving that exact pressure you're talking about, you know, that why do we have the ambulances sitting waiting at the hospital? That's what it's going to take. It's going to take innovative new ways of doing things, not putting any more stress on the emergency rooms. Um, It's, you know, preventive health care is a whole other thing. Let me, before I dump all over the premiers, let me just say they they are right. Ottawa has got to pay more. Oh, sure. When when, um, Medicare was first... It was a 50-50 deal, and the fact that it's 22% now is is not good. Ottawa does fund a bunch of other things, and there are tax points and uh, things that uh, people more expert in 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 uh, federal provincial finance could tell you. But but it is true that it's the most important issue for Canadians right now, always is, and the federal government should be not should be paying more, not doing these one-off, you know deals for this and deals for that. I think Ford is right that the healthcare system needs stable funding, but what it mostly needs is innovation, experimentation, and uh, not meetings. (laughs) Uh, A bunch of people sitting around a table talking. Why the political theater, though, Susan? I think that's what frustrates an awful lot of us. Uh, I, I kind of mused about this on Monday on the program, and I said, you know, I, I just got this feeling that I think there's going to be a federal election next year. Uh, and I just I saw Tom Mulcair's column on CTV the other day, and uh, Tom, of course, is a former politician turned pundit. Uh, and he says there's going to be an election next year, and he says it's going to be about health care. That's going to blow up this deal between the NDP and the Liberals, and we're going to the polls. Now, I, I don't know that that's actually going to happen, but I can see that scenario uh, because these guys are just so intransigent right now. They don't seem to want to work to co- together. They don't want to cooperate on this stuff. They just, they've just they drawn a line in the sand. I am going to, we, we were just talking about this in our bureau. I'm going to, the Prime Minister and Jagmeet Singh did sit down together this week as part of their ongoing relationship. I don't, like you, I don't rule out the possibility of, um, of an election. I'm not sure healthcare is going to be the breaking point, simply because what Jagmeet Singh was demanding this week when he held that press conference were things that the provinces have to do. And yeah. you, you can't ask Justin Trudeau to fix what's wrong with the healthcare system when it's, it's the provinces. But you can ask him to... Um, up his game. I fully expect we're going to see a first minister's conference in January of some kind. I don't know what it it will look like, but I, I do think it's been a while since we've seen them all together. A bunch of those guys sitting around a table talking. They do talk a lot mm-hmm. privately, but I do think we're we're headed that way. I don't know that it's going to forestall an election, and I don't know that we could have a healthcare election because what are the two sides in that? You know the the it's it's hard to see um, anybody being against more health care. So I, I, I'm just not sure how that, that turns into a breaking point. But but I do think that uh, we are at a breaking point logistically, definitely, and, and um, at the hospitals. But, but isn't part of the problem here that we don't have a health care system? We have 12 of them. Uh, you know, yeah. Ontario does it different than Alberta. That does it different from the territories, and on and on it goes. Uh, so it's, it's awfully hard to, to, to actually find some commonality here because they basically go about th- things differently in many different ways. And uh, we, we need to have a discussion about that as well. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, yeah, we could learn from somebody else. But at the same time, uh, you've got to be open-minded to be able to do that. 
as we saw during COVID, as you and I have both referenced, you know, I remember when, um, when personal protective equipment was in short supply and some provinces had more and others had a shortage, we saw, I think, Alberta shipping some to Ontario. Mm-hmm. It, you know, that that's the way the system works when it's nimble and it's, uh, and, and people are, are talking to each other about new and different and interesting things to do. So I'm not sure it's, Trudeau has made this point that that the many different systems allows for experimentation and for people to learn from each other. So if we just had, we we don't want the healthcare system run like the post office. Sorry, sorry, post office. But we, the federal government's not great at managing big things because the country's so big. What we need is something integrated, though. I take it is is, is what the you know CMA and others are talking for, not. Not one monolith, but a lot more learning and experimentation and innovation from each other. Well, I guess one of the most gratifying things I read yesterday in your piece was the fact that, as you mentioned, behind closed doors, there are some things happening and some progress being made. So I guess we have to cling to that right now. Susan, always a pleasure. Uh, Thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Me too, as always. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Susan Delacourt, national columnist for the uh, Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to circle back to uh, the uh, controversy about the Greenbelt legislation uh, that uh, the government passed recently here in Ontario and uh, the concerns that are ongoing about what's going to happen, the long-term and short-term implications of that. And uh, it's... uh, there's a letter that I'm going to get to in a couple of seconds here from a number of faith leaders that address a number of this, but I just want to refresh your memory, if I could, before we get into that. Uh, because one of the things I think that really upset people, well, first of all, the fact that they pretty much opened the, some of the green belt up, but he's forward on a number of occasions has said that he wouldn't do that. Uh, this is a, a clip from, uh, I think it's about a year, a year and a half or so ago, uh, when the premier was asked at that particular time, uh, about the green belt. And, uh, I, you may remember, of course, that, uh, when he was running for election the first time, uh, it was reported and he finally admitted that yes, he did meet with a number of developers and, and talked about maybe, you know, opening up the green belt. And there was so much pushback on that, that he said, no, we're not going to do it. And then a couple of months later, well, here's what the premier said. Unequivocally, we won't touch the green belt. Uh, unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear. People don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. We'll figure out uh, how to clean up this housing mess and this housing crisis that we're facing in a different fashion. But all my friends, I listen to you. You don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. Well, <laughs> that was then. This is now. Of course, the legislation does allow for some large swaths of the green belt to be opened up uh, for a number of different kinds of development. And to that end, there is an open letter now signed by 50 uh, faith leaders from across the province, uh, basically raising concerns about uh, this policy and about the the beauty of the green belt and and the importance of the green belt. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Gideon Foreman. Gideon is a climate change and transportation policy analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation. Uh, Gideon, good to talk with you again. Thanks for yeah. joining us on the program today. My pleasure. Good morning. It's it's interesting to see. I, I'm not going to say I was surprised by this because I know I know some of the people that their signatures of this, uh, and and they're people that care about this province. They care about nature. They care about people. Uh, so that doesn't surprise me. But uh, I. I I find it interesting, though, that that they would get together and just say, look, we have to be a voice here uh, for the government. Uh, Talk to us about your reaction when you heard about this. Yeah, I was delighted. I mean, um, the first thing that jumped out at us, Bill, was just the range of different faith leaders. It was Christian leaders. It was Jewish leaders. It's Muslim leaders. 
and they were all united in this affection, I would even say love for nature, and more specifically their love for the Greenbelt. They don't want to see it harmed. They don't want to see it paved uh, by a highway, and uh, the Highway 413. And so in a matter of weeks, this group of over 50 faith leaders came together, um, you know, with the credibility that faith leaders have in our community to say, no, you can't, you can't destroy the Greenbelt. Once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, and they're pretty pointed in the, in the uh, I was going to say criticism, but I mean, you know, it, these are facts that they're talking about. And you, now I've talked about these in the past, and yes. I know that it didn't come up much in the debate in the legislature, because there was no debate in the legislature about right. it. Uh, but, but you know, they talked about congestion is not going to be solved by new highways uh, that incentivize additional traffic. Uh, we need uh, expansion of public transit, including exactly. GO trains, electric buses, etc. A lot of stuff in here that have been talking points for the longest time that the government just seems to have glossed over. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things that the faith leaders point out is, you know, the, the cost of the highway could be $6 billion bill, it could be 10 or more. You know, in 10 seconds, your listeners could come up with better uses for $10 billion. What about building more hospitals and more public transit and hiring more nurses? So in addition to everything else, you know, the cost of Highway 413 is just so astronomical, it beggars belief. And I think this is also something that is spoken to the faith leaders. I should also mention, you know, that it's not just faith leaders who are speaking out. No. I mean, over the last couple of years, it's been scientists, it's been business leaders, it's been, you know, high-profile people like Margaret Atwood and, and, and others. Right across Ontario society, people are saying you cannot build an expressway, a freeway, and pave the greenbelt. That's the heartening thing. That's the thing that gives me some hope, Bill, is that there are all these different sectors of society who are standing together and saying, hands off the greenbelt. Well, you've been around politics a long time, so I, yep. and we understand that, okay, you know, what they do and what they say are oftentimes two different things, and, and, yep. and that's frustrating in and of itself. But first of all, the comments, of course, from the Premier, I, I, more than one occasion that he actually said, we're not going to do this. And, and the last time I remember him saying it publicly anyway uh, was during the provincial election campaign a few months right. ago. Uh, we're not going to touch the green belt. Don't worry, we're not going in there. And, of course, you know, as soon as they get reelected, they did that. Uh, but that's the galling thing about this right now is that, you know, the, this he says he's going to listen to the people. The people have already spoken about this, and, and they're just going to move ahead. And I guess from a political standpoint, I made this program this point on the program before, his own committee about housing, uh, you know, about That's affordable right. housing and, and dealing with the housing crisis said, don't touch the green belt. We have more than enough available land. You don't need to do this. I mean, how can you blatantly just turn your back on the advice from the people that you hire to give you advice? No, exactly. I mean, the government should be listening to the experts and his own experts, as you pointed out, said you don't need to build on the green belt within the existing footprint of Ontario's cities and towns. We can build the housing we need in places like Mississauga and Hamilton and Toronto within the current city boundaries. We don't need to chew up the green belt. You're exactly right. I mean, I think when politicians say one thing and then they say something different later, later, it's, it's very very worrisome, and it's really an attack on democracy. I mean, my goodness, if a politician says they're not going to touch the green belt, and then they go out and, you know, rip up the green belt, put a highway through it, allow all of these monster homes in the green belt, it's terrible for the environment, but it's really an attack also on our democracy. Well, there's a credibility issue here, too. I mean, you know, yes. whether it's Doug Ford or anybody else, uh, when you say one thing and then do something else just a little while after that, you've got to say, well, can I trust them with anything now? You know, exactly. I, just, whatever they tell me in the past, I, I'm going to be skeptical about it. anything that comes up from here on in. Do you really mean that? Because we really don't know. 
and it just feeds this terrible cynicism. And we saw in the last provincial election bill uh, just such a low voter turnout, and maybe it's partly the people just are cynical, and then they feel it won't make any difference. I can tell you the Suzuki Foundation, we spent a lot of time encouraging people, in a, and of course in a nonpartisan way, to get out and vote, because we want people to get out and vote and protect the environment, protect nature, and, and, and vote with nature and with the climate crisis in mind. We spent a lot of time urging people to get out and vote in that provincial election. It was unfortunate that there weren't that many people who got out. The, the, you know, it was really very, very low turnout. Uh, and, um, and when politicians break their promises, it just feeds that cynicism. So, yeah, like I say, it's really an attack on democracy when these politicians are not keeping their word, especially on something like the green belt that people care so deeply about. You know, we were looking at some polling recently, Bill. You know, three quarters of Ontarians say the green belt is no place for a new highway. You know, 85% of Ontarians, according to ECOS, says the government should do more to protect forests. So the government's going in one direction, people of Ontario are going in another. Well, and... and just earlier in the program, uh, we, we were talking to some people about the Ipsos uh, survey that came out uh, to yep. do with the COP10 that's going on in Montreal these days. And I'm sure you saw that where 95% of the people that were, uh, and over 2,000 people were uh, were uh, polled on this, 95% of them said they want to live close to nature. They, I mean, they, yep. they want cities, but they want they want nature near them. Uh, I, I, you know, and, and that's that's one of the reasons for conservation authorities, of course, and they've pretty much taken a lot of the power away from those as well. Right. And, and it just, there seems to be a process in place here. And there's a point to be made here, and I think you and I mentioned this on the last time I had a conversation. Uh, the initial Greenbelt legislation didn't say, you know, no development of any kind ever in the Greenbelt. They didn't say that. They said there has to be, ex- there could be exceptions, but there has to be a strong business case, and, and there, there have to be uh, basically an analysis by experts before you can say yay or nay. They did none of that when they just decided to arbitrarily do this. They didn't want to have that analysis done. Right. Uh, they've taken that power away from conservation authorities, basically to say, just be quiet and let us do what we want to do here. And that's, that's as you say, that's an attack on democracy. Yes, and it, 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 that, absolutely. And this ignoring of experts, I mean, we have to be science-based in this. The, the experts who, you know, who've looked at this issue have said we do not need to open up the green belt in order to accommodate housing. Everyone agrees we need to, to, to provide affordable, uh, good, sustainable housing for people. Chewing up the green belt is not the way to do it. Um, and putting a new highway through the green belt is not the way to do it. We, for goodness sake, we already have Highway 407, which is terribly underused. Let's make better use of Highway 407 before we spend $10 billion on something new. This is just common sense, you know. It's an attack on democracy. It's also the government is just attacking common sense. Well, and especially when you look at that that particular highway project, and, and I think that's yes. what galls an awful lot of people. I was talking to somebody from uh, up around the Pickering area about this a couple of weeks ago. And and as you know, uh, I mean, you know, the the federal government and the provincial governments of, of past generations wanted to build another airport up around Pickering, and uh, right. it's it's on wetlands, by the way. Uh, and finally, as as this gentleman reminded me, he says after about thirty years of fighting, they finally said, "Okay, fine, we're not going to build the airport." Right. <laughs> but like twenty four hours later, they just decided, "Okay, but we're going to put a highway through the wetlands anyway." Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're not getting the message here. No, absolutely. We're never going to look back, Bill, and say, oh, my goodness, we protected too much nature for our kids. I mean, the the polling that you just cited, people love nature. We as Canadians feel such a closeness to it. And coming out of the pandemic, I mean, my goodness, we realize the healing power of the natural world. Spending time in nature is good for us. It's good for our mental health. It's good for our physical health. 
So for goodness sake, why would you pave it? It's just, it just beggars belief. And, but, but as I said, Bill, I mean, the good news is that so many different sectors of society are saying, no, hands off the green belt. And, and this group of 50 faith leaders is just the, the latest. So that gives me some, some heart uh, that we're going to stop this highway. You know, we are going to do everything we can to stop this highway 413. I mean, you know, I understand that we're not where we need to be with public transit. That's part of the solution to it, to have more public transit. We get that. Uh, But for public transit to work, it has to be affordable and it has to be convenient. And and it's not in Ontario. Uh, But don't just throw your hands up and say, well, I guess that's not part of the solution. Make it better. And and that, that, that should be part of the dedication here. Absolutely. We're 100% we need to make public transit better. We've done a lot of work on that at the Suzuki Foundation, trying to, A, to put more money into public transit, and also just some very simple things of giving transit priority in cities. I mean, if we gave our buses, you know, their own dedicated bus lanes, if we had signal priority at lights for buses, they would move much better, uh, and they would be much more convenient, uh, more reliable, and people would take them. So you're absolutely right. We need to make public transit attractive, but we know how to do that. Like the solution are at hand. We need electric buses, we need light rail, we need it to be affordable and convenient. But we know how to do that. And the Europeans do it all the time. And look at their cities, much less congested, much more walkable and much more transit friendly. So we know how to do these things. Is this letter going to do any good? Is it going to resonate? I mean, it's going to be one of, as you mentioned, a number of different groups that are going to be vocal about this right now. Uh, The Premier's backed off on this twice. I don't know if he's gone, excuse the bad metaphor, but too far down the road now. I don't think so. I don't think it is too far down the road. I mean, this government we have seen will change its tune if there is enough pressure. They have in the past, and we will continue to push and push and push. What gives me a lot of hope about this letter is just the breadth of these leaders. In a matter of weeks, leaders from all these different communities, all these different churches, Muslims and and Jewish leaders, uh, came together. I find that very encouraging. I haven't seen that level of, of... unanimity around an issue for a long time. And just another small example, we have a, a petition on Highway 413 against it on our website. In, in the last few weeks, we've just gotten tens of thousands more signatures of people who don't want that highway. So there's this groundswell of people saying we need to save the green belt. I think that will win in the end. Well, we will see and see how the government responds to this. Uh, Gideon, yes. always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Likewise. Thank you so much, Bill. Really appreciate it. Gideon Foreman, uh, climate change and transportation analyst with the uh, David Suzuki Foundation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting concern here. I mean, we've been talking about the medical crisis and the healthcare crisis that's going on. And, and part of the solution that everybody, I think, agrees with is we need more doctors and we need more nurses. I mean, that, that's you know, simple math, really. Uh, when and I get that. I, I totally understand that. But here's the thing. I'm, a story I saw yesterday that just jumped right out at me. Uh, Canadian doctors who are training at international medical schools are finding it increasingly difficult to come back home to practice uh, medicine after they get their, their education and their degree offshore in many cases. And you got to wonder, what's what's going on here? I mean, is this red tape that's holding this up? I want to bring our, our next guest in to talk about this. Dr. Jason Profetto is a family physician also the chair of the Clinical Skills and MD Admissions with McMaster University, and always a welcome guest on this program. Doctor, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It, it underscores a couple of things here. I, people who go offshore for training, in I, is, it, is it because of a lack of spaces at, at Canadian medical schools that, uh, that a number of uh, potential doctors and, or students of, of medicine uh, choose to go offshore? 
Yeah. So the, the major problem here is that there, there's two levels, right? So there's application to medical school and then there's application to residency spots. Um, mm-hmm. Canada and in particular Ontario, believe it or not, has one of the most competitive, statistically speaking, medical school application pro- uh, processes in the entire world. So McMaster, for example, has admissions numbers and percentages that are similar to most Ivy League schools like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, etc. And as a result, we just have so many more applicants than we do spots available. Now, if individuals really want to become doctors, but they're unsuccessful in, in, in getting into medical school in Ontario or Canada, it is very common for Canadians to travel abroad, especially to the US, the Caribbean, Australia, and certain parts of Europe like Ireland. What's the education like? I mean, because we've always heard that, uh, you know, for some other professions, well, that's great. You, you've got your degree or your medical degree in this particular case or your law degree, because I know lawyers that will do this as well. Uh, but you say, yeah, but, you know, you've got to learn the Canadian way. There's, there's standards here in Canada or in Ontario uh, that, that need to be adhered to as well. Is, is that a stumbling block? Yeah, I, so I, I think that's fair. What, what you would see is that most individual Canadians who are studying abroad for medical school are probably very appropriately and adequately trained. However, it, it's a high-stakes prov- process for the, for the provinces and for the country because it can't just be a willy-nilly sort of come back and do whatever you want sort of thing. There needs to be a rigorous process in, in such a way that we can screen and evaluate and certify individuals that are coming back to Canada to ensure that they have the proper education. Because we're not talking about a simple sort of service that's being delivered. We're talking about doctors, potentially surgeons, specialists working in hospitals, family doctors running clinics. So there's there's quite a bit at stake. And we, as a governing body, or the governing bodies in Canada and the provinces, really need to make sure that the doctors who are actively practicing, regardless, irrespective of where they come from, are are properly prepared, certified, and continuously monitored and audited like like we all are are there some countries or some medical schools that uh, that, that do it better than others I, I think so the closer you get to canada especially within the u.s there's a lot of medical schools that have very similar pedagogical or curriculum set, setups and structures as the canadian medical schools do i think certain parts of the world especially when there's significant cultural differences may actually train medical or doc, medical doctors in training will have a bit of a different perspective. If, if for example, though, you think about um, trans care, so trans people who are seeking medical care, th- depending where you are in the world, like y- your exposure to education on that topic could be very different. Mm-hmm. Think about the discussions, the ethical discussions around abortion and therapeutic abortion access in certain parts of the United States versus certain parts of Canada versus certain parts of Europe and the rest of the world, right? And those are just a couple of quick examples where culturally things can dictate quite a bit of curricular differences from one country to another. So, and I understand that about standards. I mean, I'm not trying to be flippant here, but I mean, you know, like a gallbladder is a gallbladder. You know, if you learned how to take it out in Dublin, you could probably do it in Toronto or Hamilton too. But but as you mentioned, there's some other nuances that need to be addressed. 
Uh, and and I'm fully aware of that. You know, if if I've got somebody operating on, on you know, or, or caring for somebody in our family, I want to make sure that they're fully qualified. So that that makes all kinds of sense. But is there a way that we can streamline the system to try to 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 move it faster than it is, and and to maybe get more people back here and practicing? Yeah, I, the, the gallbladder example is a funny one. I, I do agree, but I mean, like the the proof is in the pudding. When you when you look at a lot of our internationally trained doctors that are actively practicing in Canada, a lot of these people are absolutely fantastic specialists and doctors and surgeons and the whole bit. So the individuals that we get from outside of Canada are very very strong and totally adequately trained to to practice in Canada. Um, yeah, there are like, you know, here's a here's a real quick example, which I guess is somewhat related to that you get a license to you obtain a license to practice in a province. So my my license to practice technically is not transferable to the other provinces, nor the territories. So that's one thing that is already like a simple barrier that needs to be a little bit more streamlined so that you get a a license to practice in Canada, not necessarily an individual process. But then the other thing too is even just making certification testing processes, making them accessible, affordable, so that individuals that are coming from different countries that are ready, willing, willing, and very excited to practice in Canada can do so. And just making sure that it's a robust but efficient system. Uh, the, I'm sure you saw the article that I read uh, about this the other day. It was in the Globe and Mail. Uh, and the, the insinuation seemed to be, look, at if you're Canadian and you go offshore to Ireland, or as you mentioned, Australia, any number of other countries, uh, the, there seemed to be insinuating that maybe you get first crack at it after you, you got your education. You're a Canadian. Yes, you should be welcomed back here with open arms. But it, it's it's not, from what I understand, the citizenship here, doctor, that, uh, that seems to be the concern. It's it's the kind of training, the level of training you got at that institution. I mean, the piece I was talking to, I mean, the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, I guess, is uh, 40% Canadians uh, that are enrolled in that particular thing. So it's it's they say it's a de facto Canadian medical school. But I mean, there's some fine points, I'm sure, that you still have to kind of brush up on if you're going to practice medicine here. Yeah. Okay. So, so if you went back to what I said earlier, there's two levels. The first is getting into medical school. So that's very challenging. The numbers are statistically very difficult to get in. Um, just for example, uh, we get approximately 5,500 applicants to McMaster every year. Only about 550 are interviewed. That's 10%. And only uh, only uh, 200 ish are accepted. So, like that 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 acceptance number is very low. Now. When someone finishes medical school, then they apply to residency. And that's where you choose your specific discipline, whether it's family medicine, surgery, obstetrics and gynecology, etc. So when you apply to residency, there's only so many spots in Canada. And it's roughly a one-to-one ratio of medical students applying and spots available. The vast majority of spots for residency are reserved for Canadian graduates. There's a small percentage of spots that are reserved for international graduates. And international graduates is basically anyone, irrespective of citizenship, outside of Canada. So anyone from the, you can live in Buffalo, New York, and you're considered an international medical graduate, and you're competing with someone that's applying from Beijing, Dublin, Sydney, Australia, etc. So that's a major barrier because you're competing effectively with the entire world. And then some people, which you're alluding to a bit, say, should there be a difference between uh, Canadian, Canadian studying abroad who want to come back versus 
international medical graduates who are not Canadian citizens who want to come to Canada. And that that is actively a debate that's happening. And they're trying to sort out the nuances to this conversation so that they can sort of fast track this process and whether or not there should be two different streams for Canadians studying abroad and international graduates. Well, we're going to follow the story very carefully because it looks as if that could actually be part of the solution to uh, the, the crises that we seem to be facing. Doctor, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show and to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. You too. Dr. Jason Perfetto from McMaster University uh, with uh, the partial solution anyway to find more doctors and get more doctors practicing uh, in hospitals and, and especially given the fact that the surgeries are so backlogged these days. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.